Welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and our guest today is Stacy Phillips. Stacy Phillips is a partner at Blank Rome now, and by every account, one of the leading matrimonial, leading family law practitioners, not just in Los Angeles, not just in California, but in the United States. She is regularly on all the list of, of leading 10 and leading 100 counsel, and not just as a matrimonial lawyer, not just on the list of women lawyers, but of all leading lawyers in California. And we're delighted to have Stacy with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Stacy. Thank you, Howard, for having me. Uh, we're going to be talking about many subjects. Uh, first, uh, the impact of COVID from your perspective, from the perspective of a family law practitioner who's dealing with what's been happening now uh, for many months, impact on families, impact on children, impact on cases, uh, on the entire family law practice, on what's been happening in courts. Uh, We'll be talking about your having brought what is traditionally a boutique practice, matrimonial practice, into a major national firm. And then we're also going to be talking with Stacey about her remarkable role in forming new relationships of power, especially in the organization with the acronym FANG, Female Attorneys Networking Group, in which she's been a major leader and provides a model for how people who may have been excluded from traditional relationships of power in the legal profession can deal with that in a very effective way. Stacey, let's start out talking about, because I think this is an interest of everyone, not just as lawyers, but in our own lives. What has been the impact that you've seen as a family law practitioner during these past half year uh, of COVID on families? What, what have been the stress levels? What has been happening? So my observation, my experience uh, has been that COVID has had a very uh, direct impact on families children, couples, people. Uh, I watched what happened with Wuhan and the cartoons where you see people lined up to file for divorce, and I had a pretty good sense that would happen here, and then it has. Um, I look at COVID similarly to the way I looked at 9-11, as scary as that may sound, where people look at their lives and say either, you know, What I complain about is really nothing. I should be grateful for what I have and hold on to it and change their lives in that type of positive direction. Or they look at their lives and say, I have only one life and this is not the way I want to spend it and choose to file for divorce. Filing for divorce these days uh, when we didn't have a courthouse for many months other than for emergencies was a little more of a challenge. Uh, Now our courthouse is are open, at least most of them are open, uh, for restricted uh, matters, but still open. I just completed a one-month trial in the courthouse, masked and semi-gloved uh, with plexiglass. It was um, a surreal experience. I have also had this observation that in the beginning of COVID, uh, folks were compliant, scared, willing to work together. Uh, But now I have observed that, and I say this when I've observed in my practice, people are angry, frustrated, and cases that should settle are not settling. It's 
a very strange phenomenon, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out as we go through more months of COVID as we expect we will be going through. Yeah, your perspective on this is, is really important because, of course, in your background, you spent a substantial amount of time as a mediator. You've dealt with all kinds of family law conflicts and others as well. But you've mentioned it, and I'm especially interested in your reference to the one-month trial. And in this period with court closures, not many lawyers have had the experience trying cases under these conditions. Tell us about the experience in in the one-month trial. There are two types of trials that have been going on. My trial that I was talking about was over a month. It was 11 days in the courthouse, but with all the prep, it consumed the month. And that was literally in the courthouse with social distancing, with masks, with plexiglass, uh, every few days there would be a new piece of plexiglass in front of the judge, between the judge and the witness, the law the clerk and uh, the lawyers, the uh, court reporter and the lawyers. Just think about washing your hands gloves. It's a very strange phenomenon. Uh, restaurants were not open. Where do you go? Uh, the cafeteria upstairs uh, closed inside, but the outside uh, which was actually quite lovely, has a view of L.A., was open. Just a strange experience. Many practitioners, though, are having uh, trials by Zoom or the equivalent. And I've had multiple hearings, multiple depositions, multiple mediations. I'm doing one today um, by Zoom. Today, well, starting today, the courthouse downtown, the L.A. Superior Court, all of the L.A. Superior Court is starting a new program, Zoom-like, so that we could have virtual trials, which we haven't really been able to do before in the courthouse. You said, you mentioned, I want to say that our listeners know, you mentioned starting today, this is being recorded on August 17th, uh, 2020, so that's when that program began. But let's talk about the separate experiences before we get to Zoom. In the courtroom. Uh, tell us about that environment and the mask-wearing environment and how that worked. Everybody was wearing a mask. Including the witnesses? Were, were, were the witnesses? Including the witnesses. Absolutely. It muffled sound. You can't see facial expressions. Uh, some folks, and I did this part of the time, wore uh, one of the visors, uh, shields, but that tended to put the voices down. Um And I had a great one made by a friend of mine's company, and it was terrific, but also directed the sound down. Uh, So the judge preferred masks. We were trying different things uh, as it was going on. They're talking about jury trials where you really can't can't see people's expressions, which is why jury trials have been delayed and because of the social distancing. It was a challenge, and we talked about it in the trial And I was constantly saying to the court, um, I can't hear you because we don't realize it. But a lot of what we do is we read people's lips when we talk. And when you put the mask on, you are not able to do that. Most people don't realize they're doing it until they can't really understand what somebody's saying because they're wearing a mask. Especially interesting in the family law context. I mean, of all the areas in which there are disputes in court, because of the emotions involved and because of the judgments that are made uh, by the court and others about people and the credibility of their testimony, there are really few areas in which 
reading emotions are more important than this kind of than, than family law disputes. Do you think that affected the quality of the decision making? I don't think it affected the quality of the decision making. I just think it it tires everybody. You have to struggle more. You have to concentrate more. You have to be more aware, which is heightened enough in trial. Um, our judge is a very thoughtful judge and you know knows her stuff. Uh, and I don't think the result would have been any different. It just meant maybe might have been a little bit easier to experience or to get to where the judge needed to go. But in terms of the strain, it sounds to me like one, one clear thing we probably can say is that in terms of the strain on participants, including the additional pressure and strain on judges and making decisions, lawyers, cases, and everyone involved, that this simply involves a far greater emotional strain uh, than, than, than doing it the, the, the regular, ordinary way. Emotional strain, and it's really tiring, even more so than normal. The judge even made a comment about that. Would you have preferred doing this entirely on Zoom rather than in the courtroom? Well, that's actually a loaded question. Would I have preferred doing it by Zoom for safety reasons? You bet. But would I prefer to do things in person uh, for the quality of the trial experience itself? Yes, I'd rather be in person. Actually, one of my partners right now, just completing a trial, she and our client were in the courtroom, and all the opposing counsel, there are a whole bunch of them, and their client and the witnesses are by Zoom because the opposing counsel are older and opted to do it by Zoom. And it's taken several months of the court being back in business to allow some type of Zoom experience. We had a few witnesses by Zoom, and it was a little odd, uh, but we've all adapted. You know, seven months ago, if you asked me if I could have done any of this, I would have laughed at you. Now I've had more Zoom experiences that I know how to count, uh, know how to go into breakout rooms. And I, the funny part is when I'm in a mediation and we're in breakout rooms and the judge then goes to the other side's breakout room, I literally visualize the judge walking down the hall. It's surreal. Yes. No, that's it. We've had it's it's been quite an experience for everyone. I want to ask one more question about this before we move on. When we talk about Zoom versus in court with with uh, with uh, wearing masks, there's been some split of opinion on this. There are some uh, judges and arbitrators and others who have said that it actually may be easier to judge credibility uh, with a, a face and shoulders shot on a on a TV screen with no mask than it is in person with someone wearing a mask. Uh, how do you come down on that? Do you think there's any, any good reason to that? I actually had that very discussion with one of my favorite retired judges after he had his first Zoom trial. He thought it was terrific because he could really see. My concern is you don't know who is sitting there. You don't know who is feeding somebody notes. You don't know who's talking in somebody's ear that you can't see uh, through any sort of ear device. I was concerned about that in depositions. I think the security concerns are real, and there are there, people are developing, you know, now a great many protocols and protections, attempting to deal with those issues. No, you know, no, no communication outside what's happening in the deposition. No connections, etc. But this is something that we're all going through. So now we come back to, given what's going on with all that, 
the effect on overall on family law cases and the practice. Has there been an effect of, of this on pending cases? Have there been pressures and changes on pending cases uh, because of what's been happening? Uh, several fold. First of all, if a couple is going through a divorce and has it split up physically, uh, which is often the case if they don't have the money or even if they have the money until they know what the resolution is or folks don't want to move because they don't want to move out of the house and they're both in the same house, now you are both stuck in the same house. Different parents have different ways of looking at the COVID rules. Some may be more rigid than others, uh, and that is affecting how they live together. Or couples are in separate houses with kids, with kids going back and forth, and each parent has a different view on how the COVID restrictions need to be followed. And that has caused great consternation and hearings. I call them motions and commotions. Yeah, motions and commotions is a, is a very perceptive and descriptive uh, phrase. But what about the effect that you mentioned children? There have been reports of, of uh, difficulties of child abuse, of child development, simply the effect of children and families, whether the parents are together or not. Have you seen that in the, in the situations you've dealt with? Yes, I've had the police and the Department of Children and Family Services uh, showing up at clients' homes pretty regularly during COVID in a way that I'm not used to experiencing. That's normally few and far between, but the intensity and the pressures of COVID and folks living together has caused this to happen. And that's really hard to deal with. It's not healthy for families. It's not healthy for children. But this is a really difficult time. So let's look at children one way, interactions with parents as another, and then look at the values of assets and income. Assets are going down in value other than maybe stock and Zoom are the equivalent. But property values, houses, I have a few cases where houses are just not selling and we have to keep dropping the price. Well, you don't want to have a fire sale, but people are unsure about what the future brings. So for the most part, they're not buying and selling homes as regularly. In addition, folks are out of work or they are furloughed or their income is cut even if their business is still clicking along and they don't know what their future is. So some people are saying, God, the assets are lower in value and my income is less. Let's have a settlement right now because uh, if I'm the paying spouse, it's not gonna get any better. And the other side is saying uh, no, because uh, what could be a house of X value is really half of that now, or two-thirds, or three-quarters, or whatever it is. But even both of them are scared because they don't know what's going to happen. And making decisions now seems to be more difficult. I mean, I just had two mediations with retired judges in a two-week span, and those two cases should have settled. But the potential recipient spouse was asking for things that were outlandish. And I don't think that would have happened in a non-COVID time. Cases aren't settling. There's real backlog in the courthouse. Thank God for retired judges, for people who can afford it to move the process along. But that is also expensive. It's just surreal. Do you find people on the whole are trying to be more cooperative, recognizing the difficulty, 
or has this simply made it more difficult to be cooperative given the additional stress on people? All of the above, let me explain. Uh, folks who are difficult, I think, become more difficult. Folks who are normally um, agreeable are agreeable, but even agreeable lawyers, um, it's one of the cases I was just talking about, I had two opposing counsels, one after the other, that I could work with. Uh, we didn't uh, agree, but we worked through issues, and we could have settled the case with each one. And their client fired each one of them and hired a lawyer who is much more combative. And that's one of the cases where it should have settled, but the response was outlandish. Yeah, one of the effects of the, the judge is people feeling more insecure somehow feel they must get more now to deal with security issues because of the additional feeling of insecurity. You mentioned children in terms of other procedures. Has this led to an increase, for example, in people seeking restraining orders and other proceedings outside simply the formal uh, divorce proceedings, restraining orders, complaints to police, other matters? I can only tell you about restraining orders in the family law context as opposed to the civil context. Uh, but in the family law context, in my practice, uh, yes, uh, far more requests for domestic violence restraining orders. And during the time the court was, quote-unquote, closed, um, the court was open for restraining orders. Even though you couldn't have hearings in the same way, but it was also very scary having to go to court to do that. We had a procedure court called court call where you could do it over the phone, but then you can't see anybody. And that doesn't really help in terms of assessing credibility, et cetera. So, yes, there's been heightened, in at least my practice, requests for domestic violence restraining orders, heightened with the police, heightened, heightened with the Department of Children and Family Services. All the really bad parts of what I do for a living, the more dangerous parts, the more intense parts, uh, have been um, increased. How have the government agencies responded? The uh, Department of Children's Services, for example, since we've talked about children, has there been an adequate response by the relevant government departments taking children's services as, uh, uh, as an example? Yeah, they're there. In my opinion, uh, in the cases I'm dealing with now with them, I think they've gone overboard. Uh, but who am I to judge? And I hope things will sort itself out. But it puts a stop to the family law side. Uh, in my particular case, the Department of Children's Family Law Services showed up at the house to take the kids literally as I was um, connecting to Zoom for mediation in that case, which threw the whole possibility of settlement and uh, negotiations on its ear. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, Stacy and I will talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on law practice and on families and the different kinds of impacts that it's had on families. So stick around.
The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. Bail reform is one of the most pressing issues in criminal justice legal issues today. Join the Daily Journal and Journal Technologies on September 1st for an online webinar discussing the current state of bail reform, possible solutions, and what the future holds. The event is free to attend on Zoom, but you can also get MCLE credit for $37. For more information and to register for the webinar, visit the link in the description of this episode. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of August 17th. Game developer Epic Games, the maker of the popular title Fortnite, is going after Apple after the tech giant removed Fortnite from its app store. Epic Games is using narratives also found in a congressional antitrust probe looking into Apple's alleged monopoly of power. Epic Games argued in the complaint developers have, quote, no choice, end quote, but to abide by Apple's policies or take their games off the App Store. The Federal Trade Commission is ramping up its investigations into companies claiming to sell coronavirus cures. The agency sent warning letters to at least 20 companies, including one in San Diego, saying claims they're making could be violating federal law. This action comes as the FTC pursues a lawsuit against Golden Sunrise Nutraceutical Inc. in the Eastern District of California for marketing its products as cures for the virus. Some U.S. attorneys are looking to the U.K. as a possible model for a business interruption claim litigation over COVID-19-related shutdowns. The U.S. Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation denied a motion to consolidate nearly 200 cases earlier this month, and attorneys see the U.K. case as a possible guide. A decision in the test case is expected in September. Attorney General Xavier Becerra asked the California Supreme Court to eliminate bail in some cases while they are appealed. The AG's request aims to eliminate money bail unless prosecutors get a superior court judge to order a defendant remanded to custody to protect public safety or victims. Deputy AG Joshua Klein cites COVID-19 as a new element that justifies breaking away from usual practice. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. Looking at this from a slightly different perspective, what has the effect been on the law practice, on your law practice? I am working like a crazy person. Um, I I don't have that many boundaries because I'm not going to the office. We're closed. I work from home. So it's from early morning to late at night with my respite of going for walks and talking on the phone uh, to clients and opposing counsel and maybe some friends. But... It's all-consuming. It is so busy uh, with existing cases and then with new cases. It's extraordinary, overwhelming, and just trying to keep focused and getting things done and getting rest is not so easy. You mentioned new cases. How has this affected new cases? Has it led people 
to seek uh, dissolution who otherwise might not have? Has it brought in more new cases than you otherwise would have gotten, do you think? Well, as I mentioned before, I think people react to COVID in two ways. Either they realize that their lives are really pretty darn good and they should be appreciative and whatever's bugging them, just let it go or work through it. Or they say, I have one life to live and I can't live this way. And the intensity of living together in a small environment, whether it's a big house, it's still a small environment, but you can't go anywhere or for a long time you couldn't go anywhere. Um, has intensified people's differences. And so they are filing for divorce and are angry and intense. And uh, it's busy. It's really busy. And I suppose this has had a different impact in, ter- in terms of different income levels uh, as well. Have you noticed that, I mean, can, can people who easily afford the best services dealing with this better? Or is it so emotional uh, that the emotion overcomes everything, no matter what the financial situation is. All of the above. Folks who don't have jobs or their pay is severely cut uh, are feeling it in one way. But I had a discussion with somebody yesterday. She was saying that her landlord for her business shouldn't be charging rent and she can't be there. And I absolutely agree. But at the same time, if the landlord doesn't charge rent, then the landlord can't pay his or her mortgage. And it affects his or her business and livelihood and her ability or his ability to pay their house's mortgage. So it affects everybody. Banks are not waiting for their money. Some companies who are lessors are willing to do rent deferrals, but that affects their bottom line. Uh, some people perceive the government is not doing enough. It's affecting everybody. And it's not a simple solution to say, okay, uh, we're not going to charge rent because it has a ripple effect. And the government and companies and individuals really need to work through these issues uh, carefully and not, not you know, a cookie-cutter approach. And that has the ramifications in a divorce because it affects uh, individuals not as a cookie-cutter. I want to talk to you about your being at, at Blank Room. For, for most of your career... Like many matrimonial family law practitioners, you had your own boutique law firm. Uh, That is still the model for most family law practitioners. But you've brought your family law practice into a major national firm, uh, into blank Rome. Do you think that that will be a kind of precedent that other boutiques are, are, that major national firms will reach out to attempt to bring family law practice into their general practice? And and how has that worked out? Yes, I do think that is the future. When I moved to California uh, from New York, New York major firms had what they call matrimonial practices. And in LA, there were about five or six firms that did. And over time, each one of them got rid of their family law practice. So that was the future. And then I saw the white collar practice uh, move into big firms and having boutique firms. And I started to think about that for my practice. And I thought about it for uh, seven years where I was debating. And eventually I decided it was a good move for a variety of reasons. First of all, um, I was very focused on privacy and protecting my clients' data. 
And my expert uh, consultant used to tease me that I had a big firm uh, mindset and approach and a boutique firm budget uh, because we couldn't put in all the protections I thought were necessary. And I knew by going to a big firm, uh, our data, my clients' records, et cetera, would be far better protected. And even in blank Rome, uh, we have lots of firewalls, um, but for matrimonial, we have a double, double firewall and nobody in the firm um, can get in unless they're an authorized access person. So if I bring on a lawyer uh, from another department in one of my cases, which I do regularly, they have to get special permission to get into that client's file and they can't get into anybody else's file without permission. Second, I thought it would be very helpful to have the expertise of other types of lawyers in the firm tax lawyers, real estate lawyers, general litigators, and the like. I was concerned about moving because my biggest referral sources are big firm lawyers. And I had discussions with many of the folks who referred business to me, and I promised up and down, and I this is what I do, I don't poach. You send me a business client, they are my divorce client. If there's a tax matter, I offer it to the referring firm first, if they don't want to handle it, then my firm handles it. Litigation, whoever it comes from, they don't want to handle it, then my firm will handle it. I don't poach. And I've been lucky that I've still maintained or even increased my referral base, uh, which obviously is very important. And being a blank room has been fabulous. I love the ability to consult with other types of lawyers, um, the way I focus on myself as a lawyer is I think outside the box and having other types of lawyers, whether they're complex business litigators or tax lawyers or the like, uh, they think in a different box or outside a different box. So that's been terrific. I've had the good fortune of trying to develop and developing business in other areas that are not matrimonial um, and being able to help friends of mine and colleagues when they call me up and say, I have this problem, usually I would have to refer it out. Now I can say, let me look into it at my firm, and if we can't help you, we can make a uh, suggestion. I'm really grateful and really fortunate that I am in an environment that I love my partner. I love the environment, even though now I'm home. And I really appreciate the camaraderie I have around the country. Uh, I'm very connected we are very connected uh, around the country, and that's one of the special things about Blank Rome is it's a very collegial, cooperative, collaborative, truly collaborative firm, and I'm regularly communicating with my colleagues around the country just because they're my friends. Yeah, you've said some very important things about the nature of law practice, but also the cyber issues that you've mentioned. When you work from home, the home Wi-Fi connection is the point of vulnerability of the cybersecurity of the law firm. Recently, a case which a client uh, files were hacked and then made public because the ransom wasn't paid, and the clients of the firm who were harmed by the disclosure, who suffered reputational harm by the disclosure, have brought major claims against the law firm in the tens of millions of dollars. So cybersecurity has just become a major issue, and you're right about the cost. I mean, the truth of the matter is, 
to do it with the people who can do it well, and to do it well is very expensive. And this is simply an additional risk for all law firms. And as I said, it's always been there, but with people working from home through Wi-Fi networks, which are hopelessly insecure, uh, it has just opened up this entire area of cybersecurity risk that simply has not existed at that level before. Now, we, I want to ask you one other thing about the law practice. We've had large numbers of people working at home, but they have had the experience of working first together in an office. What do you think the impact of working from home will be? And if you bring in new people who simply work at home before they've had the experience of the relationships in person with people in the firm, that's going to, is that going to pose a new challenge for relationships within law firms? Uh, it's not that it will, it has. I have several friends, relatives who have switched companies, law firms, uh, during COVID and have not been in the office to really interact. I had an experience. We have a new matrimonial lawyer who joined in our New York office. We have, I don't know, 22, 23 matrimonial lawyers in our New York, New York office covering New York, New Jersey. We have two in Philly, uh, actually covering New York and Connecticut. Philly covers New York, New Jersey. And then we have uh, 11 out here. And we had a new one in New York, and I started emailing him, welcoming him, and figuring out who we knew in common. And lucky for him, we had a matrimonial practice group get together, uh, you know, happy hour of sorts, the, like the day after he arrived. And so he could see everybody, and we could interact with him. And I assumed that made it a little bit easier for him. Uh, I have, you know, friends, as I said, who have joined new companies, or new law firms, and it's very strange. I have one co-counsel in one of my cases. She uh, switched from one law firm in New York uh, to another, and the people she already knew in her new firm she interacts with, but she hasn't been around anybody else, and she's been working uh, in large part on the case we have together, so it is if she hasn't left her old law firm. What was the happy hour that you mentioned? Was that in person before COVID hit, or was it, or was it a Zoom? No, it's just Zoom. It was Zoom a week ago. Yeah, again, so it's just seeing the faces on on the screen. Uh, but um, you know, we're going to learn a lot about this new world if it continues uh, continues for a long time. There have been some conferences. There's a major conference, academic conference that went online that was supposed to be. Uh, uh, supposed to be in person. And in person, about 100, 150 people would have registered for it and traveled from all over the world. Because it was done online, over 400 people registered. And so the people who put it together, their initial reaction was, wow, what a success. We now have 400 instead of 150 people. But the truth of the matter is that people don't go to conferences just to be educated. They go to conferences to develop relationships. And it's that, it, it, it's the talk in the hallway. It's the going out to lunch. It's exchanging business cards. It's standing, talking to groups of three or four people that you've never met before. That's a major reason why people go to conferences, not just because they want to learn about the newest SEC regulations or, or rulings from the National Labor Relations Board. And though everyone is now focused on how successful it's been in terms of volume, 
we're going to have to grapple for a long time with the pluses and minuses of, of having to do so much uh, online uh, uh, instead of in person. And the way I've handled that is, um, as I said, I walk and I use that time to do calls for work, but also to reach out to people. Uh, and I'm finding people are reaching out to me that might not normally reach out to me just to reach out to say hi across the country. We have to learn a different way of developing relationships. But the biggest loss are hugs. Ah, yes. You but, can't hug people. But, you know, you talk about develop relationships. You have been a leader, and I really want to talk about this, in terms of putting together women a women's group that has dealt with the issue of lack of access to power relationships by forming its own power relationship. The group that you helped to put together and have been so important in developing goes by the acronym FANG, F-A-N-G, but stands for Female Attorney Networking Group. Tell me about the Female Attorney Networking Group, or FANG, and the role that it's played in, in the lives of successful uh, women lawyers. I don't know, it's probably 14, 15 years ago that Judy Bain and Sharon Gerber, two lawyers, Judy then the general counsel of Epson, and Sharon, a, an executive search placing lawyers in uh, corporations, not in law firms, uh, got together and wanted to introduce, one wanted to introduce the other to another woman GC. And they had this idea to put together this group. Interestingly, they never got this other woman to participate, but I was invited by Judy uh, for the second meeting. And since then, we have brought in other female lawyers in all sorts of disciplines, whether you're a sports lawyer or general counsel of a healthcare company or an estate planning lawyer or a professor uh, or a family law attorney or a white collar criminal law attorney, and the list goes on, and different types of general counsel. Uh, and we meet about once a quarter, and the purpose is not really to network in the traditional sense, although that has absolutely happened, but really to be a support system uh, with each other. We don't golf, I love some of the women golf, but this is a way of getting together. And I have observed that people have met in our FANG group and one general counselor, chief legal officer hired another member to join uh, her corporation. She would never have met her but for FANG. Uh, we have gone through births together, deaths together, divorces, uh, changing of jobs. They went through my moving to blank Rome. Um, one of our members, the one who um, went into a company after meeting the CLO at Fang, is now uh, in the Middle East wearing a burqa because you can't go outside without wearing a burqa, uh, watching and supervising a construction site because she's also an engineer by training in addition to being a lawyer. Uh, in one case, uh, a client uh, needed a lawyer, uh, hired one of the lawyers in the FAN group who hired an expert in the FAN group, and the whole team was from FAN. Uh, if you look at some of the top lawyer lists, top women lawyer lists, uh, our ranks are filled. And we're not that many people. We're probably 20, 25 people. Uh, but we are 
um, a powerful, um, interactive, collaborative, supportive group of very, very special women. What's interesting to me, uh, in addition to everything you've said about this, is that this is a model for achieving power within the legal profession. We've often thought of achieving power of individuals going to firms and fight their way to leadership in those firms. And that, of course, is important and is part of it. But what your group did was not simply do that. You're all very successful. But by putting together this alternative group, I mean, this issue of mentoring, uh, how you really become part of always traditionally been referred to as the old boys network, how you deal with those established customs of relationships when new people are brought in to, to parts of power has always been very important. And this is a model in terms of what you've done with FANG. It's being done in other areas. The National Alliance of Asian American Lawyers, I think, has 50,000 members. So what I use that as an example in what you've done because the model of shifting power and of achieving power has not been simply moving individually within existing structures, but forming new groups outside the traditional power structure and having those groups, not just through networking, but through a whole range of activities, assert power and movement on behalf of the individuals. Are you carrying this on to another generation, moving it forward? Yes, well, Judy Bain's vision was that it wouldn't stop with us. It would be a, uh, I'll, I'll call it a phenomenon. She wouldn't use that word, I don't think. And uh, a couple of my younger partners, two women, have started two different groups. One's a little ahead of the other. Uh, and I went for a couple of their get-togethers, as did Judy or Sharon and anybody else in our group, um, to participate and encourage. And show them the uh, importance. I'll call it sisterhood. I'm also a member of the Women's Presidents Organization, which is, again, another group of successful women, um, same type of market share, getting together to be each other's inside-outside cabinet. Um, and I take it the next step. It's not just business. It's also personal. Who am I going to trust? There are a lot of good lawyers out there. But I'm going to trust the one who I know their character. So I want to know as many smart lawyers whose character I trust. Uh, and certainly for women, it is much more difficult for us, even to this day. And so I gravitate to uh, groups of just women. I'm also part of many networking groups with men and women. But FANG is very special because we are really a sisterhood to support each other. And over 14 years, I mean, just think about what we've experienced and even experiencing in COVID, we had a Zoom get together uh, a few weeks ago that I, I, it, I craved. And now one of the other members who I brought in had an idea uh, for a FANG discussion. So we're having a conference call with a couple of the other members to try to get this going just to keep the interaction and the connection. Because what COVID is affecting is connection. And that's why you have 400 people showing up uh, at a Zoom conference, because it's the only connection they can have. Yes, it's not going to be there. Uh, they're not going to be able to exchange a business card in the same way or sit down and have a cup of coffee. But you do what you can do. I remember when the Daily Journal first started their women's conference season, and I had a panel for the very first conference. And uh, the powers that be at the DJ thought it was going to be excellent. 
number of people signing up, and they had multiple for that. So they had to expand the type of uh, literal technological connection we had. And it was a really cool experience, and very early on in COVID, where I know I really craved that interaction. And I was grateful to be part of that. God bless the DJ. Well, there's one other thing that that connecting connection with Fang and what you've done that I want to ask you about because it's still so much on the agenda. I mean, we've seen the number of women in law schools now, I think, at or in excess of 50%. We've seen young women join the profession on a regular basis. We've seen associates in law firms and some partnerships. But at the most senior levels of firms, the numbers tell us that there still is not representation that would mirror the, the demographics. How do the how do the final barriers come down? You just have to keep moving forward and putting women in leadership positions. Look at all the research. Every company, if this is the the research is really clear. Every company where you have women on the board and in the top executive positions, the companies do better. Don't quite understand why, and it's not just women. It's having a diverse board, a diverse uh, leadership. People think differently. Now, that's not to say that you put uh, a woman on a board and she's going to represent the women, or you put somebody from a Latino background and uh, that person's going to think like a Latino. That is not the case. But the more diverse your backgrounds are, the more we all bring to the table. That is a fact. And we have to keep encouraging that and pushing that. Uh, Certainly that's happening through my law firm. There's the Mansfields, a rule that firms are signing up for to make sure there's a certain percentage of women uh, considered for leadership positions. Uh, Blank Rome has been uh, signed on since the very beginning. Uh, I've watched, even since I've been at Blank Rome, the number of women on the distribution or compensation committee has increased uh, incredibly since I've been at the firm. and I'm really proud of that. We just have to keep opening doors, smashing ceilings, being invited, and inviting ourselves. I do want to mention that if you want MCLE credit uh, for this hour, and you go to the website dailyjournal.com, you will see links to an MCLE test that you can take, send into the Daily Journal, and may obtain the one hour of credit uh, for having listened uh, to this podcast. If you'd like to listen to other podcasts, they're all on the website, dailyjournal.com slash podcast, dailyjournal.com slash podcast. And if you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal and you want to know more about all these issues, there's a treasure trove of articles, of news stories in the Daily Journal that can be searched, that can be bookmarked, that can be used for research. And if you're not a subscriber on that website, again, dailyjournal.com, there is a link to becoming a subscriber. But having said that, for myself, for the Daily Journal, and I think for all our listeners, thank you, Stacey Phillips. Thank you so much in the midst of your busy practice and in the midst of this time for having taken the time to be with us and to be on this podcast. Thank you so much. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Howard. And any time I can be connected to you is a gift to me. 
and connected to the DJ, which I read regularly. I have always received the Daily Journal at home, and that is really special uh, now that I'm locked at home. So thank you so much, Howard.